Ayers on the Road, value-based parenting and life balance ideas from world-traveling family coaches. Here's Richard and Linda Ayer. And we are back with Ayers on the Road. <laughs> Do you we know you've been on a long road. <laughs> you start that way every time, Linda. And we're back. And hello there. We're glad that you've joined us again this week. We have just been on the crazy roads in England. Well, we've been on the wrong side of the road, but it's actually the right side of the road. Exactly. Um, but it, you have to really keep your wits about you when you're driving, right? You know what I heard, Linda? I heard that the reason that you drive on the left is because if you were jousting, right? If you were on your horse and you were having a jousting match with that long lance and you're right-handed, right. you have to be on the left so you can poke the guy with your right hand. So clearly the left side of the road is the proper one to drive on. Clearly, except when you actually get on the road and it's a lot harder <laughs> than it sounds. Well, but we've, we've done it so many times before that it kind of comes back to us in a hurry. Well, you know, someone told me early on, way back when we first were driving in England, that what you got to imagine as the driver is that you're sitting on that center line of the road. Keep yourself on that center line because English roads are usually pretty good at having good marks on the center line. If you focus on that, you're going to be in the right place all the time, right? And as long as you keep your wits about you, you can have one foot on each side of you before you pass people going the other. Yeah, if you're lucky, you can have you. a oh, foot, maybe six. Sometimes you have to reach out, pull your rear view mirror in because you're coming so close to someone. Oh, it's so scary. And a lot of people are so used to it that they just dash on by and we're like... <gasps> Now, we're talking about country roads because we've been out in the country of the southwest of England where the roads are really, really narrow, and sometimes they're called single-track roads, and those are the real exciting ones. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> because there's barely room for because one car. you'd have to back up a long way. And you've got hedgerows on board, and sometimes you do have to back up a long way. So when we would come to someone, we would just sit there patiently and wait to see if they could notice we were Americans and that they better back up and not us. <laughs> and I'm sure they didn't really notice until we didn't back up and they oh, that must be a couple of dumb Americans. But here's what made it hard, especially hard this time, Linda, is that we have a car. We, we've always loved old English cars and long ago, I don't know, probably 30, 35 years ago, we bought a Jaguar Daimler in 1966, a classic rounded road car. It's just always been my favorite shape of a car. And we've had it, <laughs> we drove it for a while. It was called, it was Westminster Blue in those days. And we drove it around and then it finally wore out. And so we, we had a wonderful English friend who said, I'll restore it. And we said, great, go to work on it. That was 15 years ago. <laughs> right. He sat in his garage for maybe more Well, he more worked on it. He was years. working on it oh, all yeah, the time. He was. He had to order parts from England. He, he fell in English, love. He's British, and we love him, and it's always so fun. But fell in love with that car. I think he's having anxiety attacks right now because he's separated from it. But he is a great guy, and he did a good job. But what I was going to say is, so I've been used to driving a, a right-hand drive car on the right side of the road in the States. 
and something about that really threw me off. And this time I'm here, so I'm on the right side of the car, but I'm driving on the left-hand side of the road, and my brain's saying, now, you know, if it was just one side or the other and you changed right to left side drive, I could handle it, my anyway. brain says. But now, anyway, I'm confused. Enough. It is, it is crazy. But we love England, I have to say. It is our second home. We adore not only the country and the beautiful countryside and the names they can think of to name their little villages and towns. Oh my gosh, it's enough oh fun gosh. to just drive along and have have Linda just reading read the names name. of the towns. But we Little are... Badow, Cold Ashton, um, Steeplechase. I mean, just why can't we think of names Cold like Chester. that? Uh, is so wonderful. Why don't they hire that same guy to think of names for drugs in America so we can have creative, cool names <laughs> instead of the names drugs have? <laughs> yeah, that that's a good idea. Maybe we should send somebody over here to collect names. But anyway, it really is <coughs> it really is so delightful to be here. The food is better, I have to say. The the food is fresher well, the fresh and food better, is better and packaged yep. so well. And it's and, cheap right now. And you can just order it online and they deliver it right to your door. It is mm -hmm. so fabulous. A pound is only worth a dollar twenty seven right now. It was a dollar sixty, dollar sixty five when we lived here many years ago. But you might guess the theme for today's show is English stories. And boy, do we have some to tell you. In fact, we should start with today. We got to London today after quarantining for 14 days down in Bath East and in the Southwest. And the very first thing we did is our daughter, who's just about to deliver twins, came waddling over. Actually, she walked she pretty well. She's not even waddling. She's amazing. She's <laughs> it's just incredible. walking. You wouldn't know you from the back. From you, you just don't realize he has this beach ball in the front of her, but she's handling it so well. So we got to give her a great big hug, one on each side, because it would be impossible to hug her right, from, from the, the front, front right yeah, now. Right. And then we went with her to pick up little Moses, her four-year-old, from school. And that's a story right there, the British schools. All the mums and sometimes the dads, that's M-U-M, mums, right, right. are waiting each day when school lets out for their children. And the kids come out and the mums grab them and hug them and off they go walking home. And that alone is a pretty good recommendation of the British primary school oh, system. Oh my goodness, they're so cute. It is really interesting because they all start school mandatory at four. And I was so worried about that when we were here first with our kids. And we did have one of our daughters who wet her pants several times the first week. <laughs> but, Out of fear. But, um, but they do, they're so darling with them. They do such a great job. So. Oh, and they're so, I mean, the kids go, they're all called Church of England schools, the government schools. And they have Bible study to start off. And our kids learn more about the Bible. Our kids know more about the especially schools. the Old Testament. Well, old and new. The ones that were born here or went to school here know so much more about the Old Testament than our other kids do, which is kind of not a very good uh, Well, it's ironic in a way because England's become such a secular country in so many ways. But the kids still have these beautiful Bible stories at the beginning. An assembly at, every morning. Assembly every yeah. morning before they go to their own classes. So here came little Moses walking out in his little uniform. his little jumper, his little uniform, school uniform, just as happy as a clam. 
We haven't seen this little grandson for a year and it was so great to see him again. And it brought back, him walking out of school brought back so many memories of our little kids walking out of St. Martin's school. His, the little Moses' school is called St. Cuthbert's here in right. London. And ours was out in Epsom in Surrey, it was called St. Martin's. And um, all the mums waiting at the gate, it's just a great story. Wow, and speaking of English stories, we have been sucked into English history since we've been here. Oh my goodness, there's so much to learn. But we did watch some amazing movies that have taught us so much. While we were quarantined. While we were quarantined, <laughs> yeah. We watched Elizabeth, and we, we were right at a point in history that we were thinking about anyway. And then... Um, Thomas, Cromwell. Thomas Cromwell, Wolf Hall. We, we got so into it because it turns out that one of our ancestors, a Richard Tracy in the 1500s, was at the right place at the right time. Thomas Cromwell was trying to get rid of all the monasteries, the Catholic monasteries, so he could usher in Protestantism. And, and the Church of England. He worked for yeah. Richard, King Henry VIII, and he, who was going to be the head of the Church of England. And, and so our ancestor, this Richard Tracy, was able to get a hold of one of the abbeys that they were closing, which turned out to be this fabulous estate. Oh. They lived there for generations, and finally our eighth great-grandfather, who was the seventh son in this family, realized he was never going to inherit anything. He was number seven, so he took off and went to America. Well, wow, we broke out of jail yesterday. It was our 14th we day. done with the quarantine. And we went to see this house. It's called Stanway House, and it was so magnificent. Oh, my gosh, the house is beautiful, but the grounds and the lawn and the plants and the flowers are just that's, that's where we'd live, Linda, if he'd just stayed there and inherited that house. Oh, yeah, I didn't we think wouldn't about have ever, that. You know, that'd be where we'll that'd be our place. Talk to him about that and him yeah. and oh my gosh! But anyway, it was really delightful. It was an old uh, mill there at the time, and it was so fun to talk to him and get that history. So, but let me go back. Historical stories is my point. Oh, yeah, to. lots of historical stories. We're going to tell you personal stories though today, and and my first one um, goes back into the um, well be honest, it's back into the late 60s. That'll, that'll date me. But I went by myself to, to, to Europe. I was working as a summer intern for Pan American Airlines. Some of you are old enough to remember that was once the biggest airline in the world. And I could fly for free that summer. I was working in Hawaii, but I came to Europe to look around. Never been before, just a young guy, barely 20 years old, 21. And I went to visit my brother Chris, who was on his mission in the Midlands, around Manchester. Didn't tell him I was coming, got on a train in London, went out, found his address, and surprised the heck out of him. That was That's one of my favorite memories, because you're a missionary, you're not expecting your brother to show up unannounced. No, and, and the rules were probably different then. I don't know if you <laughs> checked with the mission president, but anyway, it was must have been really fun. So that was the early memory, but then it was pretty early when we came here to be mission presidents in the, in the late 70s. Well, 76. Linda was a young... Mid-70s. 28 years old, and I was a little older, thank goodness. I was 29 by the time we got here, but 
Um, it was amazing. I'd never been overseas at all. I'd been to Mexico and Canada. We tried to tell the church authorities we were way too young to preside over a mission. For those of you that don't know, that's two or three hundred young men and women who are doing missionary and humanitarian service and to be in charge of all of them is a huge job and we said we're kind of too young and, and I remember this particular authority said, oh, you'll look plenty old to those 19-year-olds. <laughs> yeah, but then the first missionary that came up to me and said, oh, Sister Iyer, you remind me so much of my mother. <laughs> oh, I don't think you I never did to like that. Like uh, you never that. liked that missionary. But Yeah, I did. But anyway, it was really uh, an amazing, amazing experience. But one, of the, one of the first stories after we got here is my life was saved one day, and I don't mean to get too heavy here this early in the show, but literally one day I was running up Exhibition Road, which is a, a road in London, and uh, there we were. I was trying to get to a meeting, and I suddenly realized that I was late. And the problem is when you get to London is you don't know, you, you're so used to looking left. And I looked left and ran out, was going to run out into this road, and I felt a hand grab the back of my coat, it was in the winter, and jerked me back onto the sidewalk, and all I saw was the flash of a red double-ducker bus going by two inches from my face. And I turned around to thank whoever had pulled me back, and there was no one there. Now, I don't mean to make something sound mysterious, but somebody needed me around for a while, and... Literally, I'd have been in front of that red bus. So how's that for an English story to start off? Absolutely breathless. And so let's, um, let's take a little break, and we will be back in just a minute with more English stories. English stories, and they will have to do with family, as you might guess. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Ayers on the Road. Here's Richard and Linda Iyer. We're back on Ayers on the Road. We're talking today about English stories. Stories of our experiences in, in England, but particularly the ones that have to do with family. And you know, you can learn a lot about family from British families. For one thing, bless their hearts, the British do an amazing job of teaching their children to be polite. I wish we could oh, do as well. So I was great. walking along the road today and four or five little British children walked by and just said, hello, hello, how are you? And they're just so kind to each other, walking along with their arms around each other. And just, there is a politeness that's pretty outstanding. You might say the British are a little more civilized in some ways than we are. I think they really are. I read this quote the other day from, of all people, Mahatma Gandhi. Someone said, what do you think of the American civilization? And he said, I think that would be a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we're, we're pretty uncivilized in a lot of things that we do. I mean, I'm not talking about you. I'm sure that your family is wonderful. But um, honestly, when we were here, we had a little nanny who came in and helped with the kids because we had four when we came. Then we had two babies while we were here. And so she was very helpful. She just came in in the morning and went home at night just a couple of days a week, and it was amazing 
well, maybe three, four well, days. It was a amazing week. the politeness she taught our kids. She just honestly, she was standing by one of my bees. I remember uh, with a bottle, uh, waiting for the child to say please. And finally, I said, <laughs> "Honey, Joyce, she can't she talk." She can't talk. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but she can learn. She can learn, you know. So she can learn um, to say please. That will be her first word. Please <laughs> and thank you. Always, it's such a fun thing. And in fact, when I got home after we finished our years here in 1979, I I did a primary thing with this is with the young children of the church, and I had 17 kids in a big stretch van. And we went to a pumpkin patch, and it was quite a deal. I took them all, we took all the pumpkins, and then I had to take them all home with their pumpkins. And I thought, how funny, because not one of them said thank you when they got out of the door. And honestly, I'd never if let that a child had been out. In, if that had been in England, everyone, thank you, thank you, ma'am, thank you. Um, well, I, didn't th I didn't think you'd leave that section, Linda, without telling, you mentioned we had two babies that were born here. And uh, they were both quite a story. Well, the first one we won't go into because we've told it once before on the show, but he came nine weeks early and we nearly lost him and we nearly lost Linda. Yeah, emergency C-section. It was an amazing was really story that we felt incredible. like was inspired and we received a lot of blessings. But the other one, the second one that was born here, because I know it's something a lot of couples face. Do I have another child? Do I have another child? Should I have one? What should the timing be? What's best for our family? These are hard questions to answer. And you would think that the one time we wouldn't be asking that question would be when we're out here supervising 200 missionaries. And we've got five little kids already. The last thing either of us wanted to ask was, should we have another child? But we just kept feeling that we should at least ask the question. And when we did, there was no question what the answer was. I think I will amend that story a little bit. You were quite sure that we should have another one. I was well, very Well, at, at some point, but I didn't, I mean, the idea but of doing it then was not very logical. I just was having such a good time with the missionaries. Our other child had just started to walk. I mean, it had... It was able to take care of himself more, and I was able to go a lot with the missionaries. And I thought, this is not the time. This is not the time. But wow, we had the most amazing experience from heaven when we knelt down to pray about that. There is reluctantly, absolutely, reluctantly to even pray. Uh, there was no doubt about it. It was time for that baby to come, and it certainly was. Well, and, not only that, you got an assurance that this would yes. be a, basically a trouble-free baby, yes. which we'd never had before. I'm going to send you a good one, Linda. He won't be any trouble. Don't worry. He didn't say he, but um, anyway, it was the best baby I've ever had. It was amazing. It doesn't always happen that way, but that was really quite an amazing story. Sometimes when Linda's, when Linda's asked what her most... Um, amazing or miraculous prayer story is that's the story you tell yeah because that was such a powerful answer to prayer you know i also want to say that uh, i had an experience one day in southampton england on the south coast near the british near the english channel and i was in between meetings i'd been interviewing missionaries all day and then i had a speech that evening so i had a couple of hours and i was walking around in the fall it was about this time of year it was a beautiful, beautiful day, just walking aimlessly. I didn't know where I was going, I was just taking a walk. And I came around a bend and, and there was a blind man selling baskets. 
had a little dog with him and he was just sitting there with his white cane and and he looked very amicable. I walked over to him and we introduced ourselves. His name was George. And the more I talked to him, the more I liked him. It was just one of those things where you just like a person instantly. He was not a bit sorry for himself and he didn't want anyone to be sorry for him. In fact, I, I must have projected some pity or something in my voice, although I didn't intend to. And he said, uh, Hey, don't pity me. He said, you have one sense that's better than mine. You can see and I can't. But I have five senses that are better than yours. And then he proceeded to prove it to me. He said, what can you hear? And I told him I could hear uh, some squeaky brakes on a taxi cab and I could hear a bird. And then he told me all the things he could hear. It was unbelievable how many things he could hear. And if I really listened for him after he told me about him, I could sort of almost hear him. And then he told me what he could feel and on and on. And I just really liked him. He had a sense of humor too. I said, did you make all these baskets, George? And he said, well, except the dog baskets. My dog made those. I mean, he was just a <laughs> cool guy. But quickly to make a long story short, I, 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 I said, George, I would love to have you come and visit our church sometime. And he said, well, I think I'd like to. I said, the problem is I don't live here. I live up in Surrey, but if I tell you the address, can you remember? Oh, he said, that's another thing I can do better than you. I can remember anything I hear. So I told him the address and then I left. Didn't think I'd ever see George again. Well, end of the story is a couple, maybe three months later, we were returning to Southampton for another speech, another conference. And my missionary leader there, what we call our zone leader called and said, President, when you come, bring your white clothing. And I, I said, okay, I thought maybe he want, cause I, we do certain ceremonies in the church where we wear white. So I said, sure, I'll do it. And when I got there, this missionary said, go on in and change into your white clothing. And I walked down the hall in the church and went into the dressing room and opened the door and there was George dressed in white. <laughs> I'll never forget it. <laughs> and, and I said, George, he said, will you baptize me? <laughs> President Iyer, because you told me about this church. And he said, you remember when I told you that I, I could feel better than you and I have my sense of feeling? And I said, yeah, I remember that. And he said, well, I meant my spiritual feelings too. And the minute I walked in that church, I felt that was where I should be. And I went and I found the leader of the church and I said, can I join your church? And he said, well, you'll have to be taught by the missionaries first and you get the idea. <laughs> but it was an amazing story. I always think of that when I think of Southern England. Yeah. Um, there is nothing like um, the, the greenery that you see here, partly because it rains so often, but going through the countryside is so beautiful and peaceful. And we got the best, the best station on the <laughs> we radio. We found a radio station. Oh you my goodness! It was classical music, but the host was Alexander, Alexander Armstrong. Alexander Armstrong, and he is the most prototypical British guy ever. He oh gets so gosh. excited about Vivaldi, and then he gets so excited about Bach. He and then and, and, and Rachmaninoff. Today, he was he's so funny. He just said. Rachmaninoff could reach 12 keys. And for those of you who played piano, it's Can you imagine a hand that big, he said? He said he was really well endowed in hands. It was, it <laughs> in was the hands just, department. The, <laughs> he, 
He was so fun and so funny, and he really did a, a great job of introducing us to some music that we'd never heard. And I've written it down. I'm gonna, I'm gonna challenge my grandkids with it. It's we'll, really fun. We'll never get through all our British stories today. We're trying to pick the ones that talk about family and. A big story for us is we got home from living three years in Surrey doing this voluntary service for our church and 10 years went by, well, eight years, I guess. And we started sort of without really thinking it would lead to anything. We started regretting the fact that our younger children hadn't had the experience that our older ones had had to go to these British schools. and to go to St. Martin's and to have this school uniform and to learn from a British perspective and to, to learn in the way that British children learn, which is really different in a lot of ways, and just to have the whole English experience. And so we were working on a couple of books and it dawned on us that we didn't really have to live in any particular place to work on these books. We could go somewhere else and work on them. And so we packed up. I came over to just explore to see if I could find it. We wanted to live in the same area because we wanted our kids to go to the same school, our younger kids, that the older ones had gone to 10 years before. And I found a house that I thought I could rent and so on. And and then we went back home and part just on a whim, I happened to be talking to someone who, um, in the real estate department of our church, and I said, we're going to move back to Surrey for a year and get our little kids to have this experience. And he said the most amazing thing. He said, you know, the mission home that you lived in when you were there before, we're, we're not using it anymore. We've moved to a different home and we're going to sell it, but we're going to, we're going to wait until the spring because it'll sell, draw a higher price then. Would you like to go back and live there? You can rent it. We'll just do a normal rental. And we said, would we ever? So Long story short, we ended up living in exactly the same home, but 10 years later. And we had the best time. I mean, we it was the opposite in a way, because we were overwhelmed with responsibility that first time we were here. And the second time, we had no responsibility, other than we were trying to write a couple of books, but we could go where we wanted, do where we wanted, see all the things we hadn't been able to see when we were there earlier. And that, I think that's where we really became Anglophiles. That's where we really fell in love with England. Well, we just really got to know a lot of people um, outside of the church. Uh, not that we didn't want to know the people in the church, but we, uh, we had a chance to uh, spread out a little bit, and it was so fun. Even today, we, are, we had an Uber driver from Armenia, and he told us about his darling family. He was so terrific. They everyone loves their families in a in a really special way, all over the world. And families are the same no matter where you where you are, no matter where you live, anywhere. We saw they we did so much families. that second time living here. So much with the arts uh, happened to be when Les Miserables premiered in London, and it also happened to be when Phantom of the Opera premiered in London, and the London Symphony, which Linda loves and the orchestra at St. Martin's in the field, and you cannot beat London when it comes to culture. Right. Um, and COVID's the same here, too. We yeah. have to tell you that. Jumping back um, up to present jumping day. Jumping back to the present day. Um, and they're so careful. They've just told all the workers who were looking forward to going back to work in October 
Now Boris Johnson just announced a few days ago. Stay home. Stay home for another six months. Wow. They're being careful. so hard. They're they're being very careful. They're going to contain it better than we do in the States. But it means our son-in-law's got to sit in his living room (laughs) with with four-year-old, two-year-old twins and us and try to work. Now, in case you're wondering, we're going to be here for a while. In case you're wondering how long, we don't know. We took a look at our daughter, Charity, today and thought, you're ready to deliver, but she doesn't know. I think it's going to be another couple of weeks. So you do? we will, yeah, <laughs> I kind of do. So we will be in touch. We'll be back again from London next week. See you then on Ayers on the Road. Bye bye.